You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about observability. We've got two guests, Jessica Kerr from Honeycomb.io and Giuliano from No Red Inc. Software Unscripted is sponsored by No Red Inc., which is my employer. No Red Inc. makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredinc.com jobs. And now, observability. So today's episode is all about observability. We have a couple of enthusiastic guests here. Why don't you introduce yourselves? I'm Jessica Kerr, online known as Jessitron, and I work at honeycomb.io. And where, where are you based? I'm in St. Louis. It's nice and hot today, but not stupid hot. Pretty nice, really. Hey there, I'm Giuliano. I work at Norad Inc. Been here for four and a half years. I worked mostly for internal engineering teams, teams that do infrastructure, operations, uh, scalability, performance, Kubernetes, all that goodness. And I'm from Brazil. I'm in Sao Paulo right now, and we just went from harsh winter to summer in about a week. What's harsh winter there? Well, not too harsh. I think it was like uh, four Celsius. So above freezing. Yeah, we went to something like 20-something Celsius. All right, so let's talk observability. Opening question is, for those who are not familiar, let's sort of define the word observability. And I know different people have different definitions of this, but what do you consider observability to be? Like, how do you define it? You know, in your heart, what is observability? Well, at a minimum, it like a stethoscope, observability is about finding out what's going on. Except in software, it's a little different because you don't just get a stethoscope and apply it to the outside and hope to gradually develop expertise at each little murmur. And, oh, I don't think that the logs just twitched there and that doesn't look right to me. Last time that happened, I think it was bad. That's like the old days of just working with what you have, just working from the outside. So like you have logs and they're already generated and like whatever happens to be in there, you're just going to poke around and try to figure out what's going on. That's the old days. Or maybe you add something, but that's kind of a special occasion because it's hard to get to. Even then you're, you're grepping through logs and on six different servers back in the day. But even now, logs have gotten better. Observability is, is something else. Observability is building into your software the ability to teach you what's going on. And sometimes that means very specifically, I know what should go on here and I'm going to build in the traces, the spans, the fields, everything I need in order to find out. And other times it's, wow, I have no idea what's going on here. I didn't know I needed to know this, but it's a good thing I dumped all of this information and I can dig around in it however I need to. Charity, our founder, always goes on about the unknown unknowns in observability. The goal in observability is to make your heart louder. I don't know, make it flashing colors instead of just make sounds. To make it really clear what's happening. To give you little windows into what your app needs and is doing and things like that. That's an interesting definition. Me from just someone who uses observability tooling, my perspective would be like, I think of observability as like my ability to understand what my systems are doing, whether some specific technique for recording the system behavior is is necessary or not. I don't care too much about that, as long as I'm able to, to understand the behavior from looking at whatever tools are available for me. 
So putting these two ideas together, I want to take this medical metaphor too far. So you got the stethoscope and like another place you might go is like an MRI. It's like a another way to like scan things. But also sometimes what they'll do before they give you an MRI is they'll like inject some dye to make certain things like show up in different colors and be easier to understand. And so like to Giuliano's point, whether or not there's dye in there, all I care about is can I get the information that I need and like understand what's going on in the body. And to Jessica's point, it's important that you're able to be aware of like, do I need to put the dye in or not, or do something else so that, you know, at the end of the day, I will achieve that goal of understanding what's going on in the system. How'd I do? Did I take the metaphor too far? Is it awkward now? Not yet. I'll try to come up with something worse later. Yeah. I think this is a really good metaphor because thinking about this situation, like putting the dye in before doing the scan is kind of like preparing your system to be observable and something happened and you don't know what it is, but you got to do this procedure to like make your system observable now because the human body is not observable by default. And I think like the place we're trying to go as an industry is, is a place where that sort of situation just doesn't happen. I don't know if I'm right, but like, this is the sense that I have. The situation where you have to take your patient, take him to a laboratory, inject some dye into the patient to then be able to understand what happened two weeks ago when you felt ill. We have enough control over our infrastructure now. We can just run our app inside the MRI. As developers, we have the option of injecting the dye or not. And what's more, there's the generic dye of auto-instrumentation, for instance, and all the best practice health and metrics and traces, but also we can inject custom dyes. And sampling is like, well, you don't have to inject too much of the dye because it's enough to be able to see some of these nerve impulses. You don't have to be able to catch every single one to see the patterns. Jessica, you mentioned earlier, Charity at Honeycomb talks about these things. I think, didn't this term come from like observability? Wasn't it coined at Honeycomb and in fact, maybe even by Charity? Pretty much. Charity created this concept because she and Christine, the other co-founder and our CEO, they recognized this need and like they had this at Facebook. Someone introduced them to a tool that Facebook had that did this kind of observability, but it was horrible to use. And honeycomb is like trying to give people that except be beautiful to use. So it's it's sort of, you know, in the past we had like logs and monitoring and this is really kind of trying to be the next evolution of that maybe. Is that fair to say? It's certainly a step in the direction. I like Giuliano's perspective on that actually. Thinking about it more in terms of the end goal rather than like the implementation details of how to get there. I think so. And I guess like going back to the medical metaphor in a sense, like different from the human body, we're building the software. Like we know and we can change the stuff in there. We don't have to rely on like what the science has discovered about this foreign thing that is our bodies to be able to inspect it. We can like add custom instrumentation as we want. We don't have to make it foreign to us. Uh, Juliana, you said something important earlier. You said observability was about your ability to understand what your system is doing. And your ability can come from a lot of places. It includes your familiarity with the system and your understanding of what it normally does. I want to go a little farther. And I also want observability to help people who are joining the team to learn what the system is doing. Of course, you're going to get more out of it with your familiarity. But I also want new people to be able to increase their knowledge. And even like one analogous situation to that is at Nordic, we have eight years of, of written code to maintain as like 20 something engineers. Sometimes we dive into a, a place in the code base that we've never been before. And we have to find out how that place in the code base works. And a lot of that is like adding 
instrumentation and figuring out whether the way we read the code is actually the way the code runs in production. Do things like, okay, I think this method is going to call this other method. So I'll add some spans and I expect to see like the span within the other span. Juliana is nodding. In the before days, before Honeycomb came along, what we used to do was we would put a row bar or bug snag or something, or even like new relic metric at the specific point we wanted to observe because we didn't have tracing spans. If we never saw that specific error in row bar, kind of like printf as a service is what a row bar, bug snag, or new relic would do for us in that situation. Let me play the role of, for the sake of listeners who are not familiar with tracing spans, let's say that normally before we started using Honeycomb, we would just say, okay, this event happened. Here's where it started. Here's where it ended. What are tracing spans and like, why are they better than that? The deal with tracing spans is, I think what happens is automatically you get this kind of like a Gantt chart of execution in your program. Gantt charts for people who were young enough to have missed this horror were created by project managers to predict when a project could finish. And they had these filled in spreadsheet cells for time that we're going to spend on each various portion of the project. And within that, there would be smaller times of this is the part where we will gather requirements. And this is the part where we will write the code. And this is the part where we will test and it will magically work. Project managers used to spend days and weeks creating and updating these Gantt charts to predict the tasks that are going to happen to complete this project. And they are all lies. They are, of course, complete BS. And it was infuriating because we think that everything that we do is composed of tasks, right? And obviously everything we do is composed of tasks because if you look back, you can say, I did tasks. I did this and this and this and this. You can never do that looking forward. The more detail you get with this sort of stuff, the more trustworthy it seems. But in fact, the more BS it is. But in the past, you can look at, okay, this day I focused on this thing, but actually I had meetings here and here. But in between, I did coding, testing, digging around to find out if that's really what they wanted because it's not really what they wanted, back to coding and so on. And that's what traces and spans give you. They give you the real story of what your production app is up to with time ranges. I mean, they don't all have to have time ranges. You can also just throw events of, oh, error happened now in there. But they're all situated in time and context with each other. So typically at the top level, you've got like a web request coming in. And then you've got like your receiving service at the front. And then it's going to call out to a bunch of other services. And those become spans inside that trace. We use trace at the top level and spans inside it, I think. And so you get all these nested spans. I got this request. To answer it, I called out to the book service and the carrot service and the lunch service. And then I accumulated that information and then I responded. And you can see all of that broken down like a Gantt chart, except real because it's in the past. So Giuliano, you were talking about you know, differences between what we'd done before in terms of how we used to do these things before Honeycomb and, and sort of now how we've done things with Honeycomb. So what we do now with Honeycomb is, well, for our Haskell services, we're using Honeycomb exclusively in Haskell right now. We have a library sort of like embedded into our the way we develop web applications. And we get automated spans for everything, basically. Like every function call? Not every function call, but like we can kind of guess the path between I.O. and some specific, like we have a way to structure the applications and commands that we run. And I think those commands maybe aggregate I.O. In, in some way. 
And we can see like between this MySQL call, there was this command that ran. And between those two Redis calls, there was this other command that ran. That makes sense because Haskell makes IO very, very explicit. And that, that generally bounds what you're doing. So you could divide spans that way. It's nice because we can be as detailed as we want. And the fact that we have dynamic sampling, we cannot break the bank doing that. So back in the day, we had metrics. And metrics, the beauty of them is that they're each a monoid. And that means something that can add to itself to produce something of the same type. And the beauty of that is that you get like fixed size. You know how much space it's going to take to store this metric, no matter how many different machines and service processes and stuff you've added up to get this number, that number is a, a limited size. And so we know how many of those we can store and stuff like that. Whereas when you start saving traces and spans and you've got like this rich, there's lots of data on each one, a zillion fields. And then within the trace, there's all these spans. The other day I made a trace with 600,000 spans in it. Don't do that. But like a hundred is very reasonable. So that's a lot. And if every incoming web request generates a hundred of these spans, which, I mean, you do batch them, but still there's web requests involved in saving those. It gets ridiculous. You might be storing 18 times your production database. And that's if you have a big production database. So you need to limit that somehow. The way you do that is you don't save every single trace, but you do save a representative one. So you don't save every neuron that fires under the MRI, but you do save the entire signal that goes from one toe itch all the way up to your brain. But not every toe itch, just one out of, I don't know, 10. If it's a boring toe itch that you have all the time, maybe one out of 100. But if it's a really, if like you get stabbed in the toe, that one is exceptional. And so we would definitely want to save that one. That corresponds to like the slowest request that you got in this minute. This one took the longest. So we definitely want to save that one. So you can have this kind of sampling where you bound how many you're going to save. We're not going to save more than a thousand an hour or something, but you still, in the ones you save, you have the full context and all the detail. And I was trying to find the rules. We actually apply to dynamic sampling in our Haskell apps, but, but basically what I think we do is we heavily sample health checks because they don't matter, but they matter sometimes. Like this week, we had a, a situation where health checks were taking five seconds to respond, but regular requests not. That was an interesting thing to dig in. Well, health checks, to be fair, are really complicated. There's a lot of queries and a lot of, you know, it's just like empty response, right? It doesn't do anything. Oh, it depends. You could be being like checking your database connections and your Redis connections and ask, you could be digging around in a health check. And we do even more than that. So what we do in our health checks is we have a separation between like critical components in the health check and non-critical components. So if there's a component that can fail, for instance, the, the cache Redis, it can fail. The service is going to be worse, but it's still going to be operational. We don't want to bring down that pod if the caching Redis goes down. We still report it in the health check. So if something's going wrong, we can call the health check endpoint and see, okay, how is it looking right now? So you have like a whole tricorder thing going on, beep, 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 that gives you the temperature and your vitamin C levels. It's not just, is the patient dead yet? No. All right, next room. And we also do the best practices, like if it's a slower request, we want to get more samples of it. If it's an error request, if it's 500, we want to get more samples of it, et cetera. Are you running the open telemetry collector? We are not. And this is one thing that I don't know if we're weird or not, but I'm reluctant to maintain refinery or open telemetry collector if we can do all the sampling in Haskell. So what we do is we have our own 
Honeycomb library, and we do tail-based sampling. And we don't use distributed tracing. So that kind of keeps things under control with. Okay, the distributed tracing is where we talked about the front-end service receives the request, and then it sends it on to various other services, and all those spans show up within this the top-level trace that came in from the outside. If you run those, and you want to trace all the way from the toe to the brain, you have to run some external process. Honeycomb has a service they publish called Refinery, or generically and vendor neutrally, you can run the open telemetry collector to do this, to decide at the top level trace level, whether to drop all that information or save it. So you're not doing the distributed tracing. So you can decide entirely in process, whether you're going to send all the spans within this trace or not. And by tail-based, I'm guessing you accumulate all the trace and span information, and then when it ends, you decide whether to keep it or not. Contrasting to Beeline, the Honeycomb library for Rails, which does head-based sampling, which I'm guessing is made to work well with refineries. So you send all your tracing spans as, as soon as they finish, like you finish doing a, a MySQL call, you send the, the tracing span for that MySQL call right away. So you're not able to do this, this sort of dynamic sampling in Ruby itself. You have to do that in Refinery. And by doing it in the separate process, you get the distributed sampling. But agree, I ran an open telemetry collector locally last week and it sucked. I mean, I'm just trying to run this locally in Docker. Give me the simplest thing that can possibly work. And it was a pain in the butt. I didn't even try it because the thing that made me lazy about trying to set it up is we have two services, one that does, compared to Honeycomb numbers, it's probably nothing, but one does 500,000 requests per minute and the other one does 150 requests per minute. 150. Thousand, sorry. A thousand. Okay. So, so the same order of magnitude. No, one is 500,000. The other one is 120. 250,000. Thinking that I would have all those 700,000 requests hitting something that I'm not super aware of, like what are the memory characteristics? Dude, if you have two services, why bother with the whole distributed magic? If you have 50 microservices all calling each other, then who called what and which one is slow is absolutely the question you want. And then it would be totally worth it. Maybe we should take a second because we don't have that many like Juliano, just kind of give a quick overview of like what services we do have and like how their like, traffic compares and their technology stacks and stuff like that. Let's see, we have the main entry point for every request we receive is the Ruby monolith. And this might be a common thing. This might not be a, a point where we're weird in the industry. We have a Ruby monolith that works for some services as, as the worst reverse proxy in the world. Then this Ruby, this Rails monolith calls into some other services. Uh, for instance, a service that runs quizzes for students. And they answer like grammar questions and whatnot. This is our highest traffic service, the one that last year, I think it did 400 and something thousand requests per minute. And this year we expect it to reach more than 500,000. That's the Haskell one that you were talking about previously. This was the biggest case for Honeycomb for us because it was very critical migration we did out of Rails and into Haskell that we really had to understand what was happening in, at runtime. And it was code that people were scared to touch in Ruby. So making this migration at the same time as discovering the code was, was really challenging. And the team that did this migration relied a lot on Honeycomb. Also worth noting that like previously, we'd done some like smaller Haskell experiments, but this was the first time that we were having something that was Haskell in production, getting a lot of traffic. We started to have questions that we really hadn't come up before, like how should we be tuning the garbage collector? How should we be tuning? We were just talking earlier today about like thread counts and stuff like that. All of these things where 
you can have code that is like nominally correct. Like it, it works. It does the thing that you want it to do on your local machine. And even with all the inputs that it's getting in production, but there's more going on than just, you know, oh, it's just these arbitrary functions that just magically execute his memory and things like that. I mean, it's Haskell. Of all languages, you can get pretty decent confidence that it's correct for as best as you can define correct. But everything else, how long does it take? How much memory is it using sometimes? But like, is it working? You can get, is it correct? But can you get, is it working smoothly? Going back to the, a little bit into the medical analogy, when I mentioned like different from the human body, we create the software, so we know what's in there. That's not really true when it's running, right? Because we didn't write the Haskell RTS, the runtime system. So the way it, it behaves with threads, with the garbage collector, with different settings is foreign to us. And it's something we're discovering sort of all the time. Well, in the, in the same way that, you know, if you're using Java or Scotland, like you didn't write the JVM and it has its own rules about how the garbage collector is going to run and like what's the perm gen space. And I don't know if perm gen is still a thing. It was when I did Java. <laughs> all these knobs to, uh, knobs to tweak. So how is the runtime reacting to your code? And then going out of the runtime, you didn't write Kubernetes either. So like, how are those settings you set on your pod affecting the way the runtime that you also didn't write affects your code? It's one thing to test your code in the little laboratory of your box or the CI server. And it's quite another thing to have a person on a bicycle riding down the road and also in an MRI with the dye inside. And that's what we get when we add tracing. So I want to go back to something we talked about earlier, which was cost. We mentioned like dynamic sampling being a way to like get the information you need, hopefully at the granularity that you need it without, you know, breaking the bank. To, to put it mildly, observability tooling can get pretty expensive. I'm kind of curious. I mean, Juliana, obviously you've had experience with this here at Nordic, but Jessica, I'm, I'm assuming you've also had experience in past jobs with various different observability tools. And it seems like the pricing can vary. Honestly, I've never been on the team that was paying for it. That's, so it's kind of a, an opaque. But Juliana has some numbers, right? So for us, the picture was with New Relic before their uh, new pricing model, which they forced on everyone at the end of last year. Uh, we were paying around $1,400 a month for New Relic, just for APM. And I think that was basically it. We are paying around $1,700 for Datadog and for Honeycomb, where we get like second metrics and uh, the latency to see the metrics in the, in the UI is basically, well, it is existent and you can, you can actually query it, but it's so low that you don't even notice. We were we started with $100 a month. And I was kind of curious, like, how does that look for Honeycomb? Because, like, it's ridiculously attractive for people using Honeycomb. But at the same time, for Honeycomb, like, you look at, this, at these numbers and think, wait, so Norin could be paying, like, 3000 a month for us, and they're just paying 100 I mean, Honeycomb, one, is very efficient. Like, we have our custom-built data store that is very efficient. The other thing is we really try to use our pricing to set the right incentives for customers. And what we want is really rich traces with lots of data in them. So honeycomb pricing is super simple. It's per event. Now an event is like, begin the trace, end the trace, I think. Maybe it's the whole trace. I think it's one each, whatever. It's per event that you send and you have so many events per month in your pricing tier, and it doesn't matter how much data you include in that. And then you can tune how many events you send by adjusting your sampling rates. You can get more precision with 
higher sampling rates, or you can keep your costs down. Now, the other day when I sent that 600,000 span trace, this is like a, a deliberately uh, evil kills its own performance microservice. It's a generating the Fibonacci sequence in the most inefficient way possible for demo purposes, but worked its way up to like Fib 20 and it's at 1.6 million spans. I hope you got an employee discount on that. Well, I'm on the free plan or maybe the internal plan, but, but I did get an email the next day that was like, yo, you had a birthday. So we're just going to drop most of these and uh, not going to charge you. If you have more than three birthdays, then we'll actually start counting them ab- against your limit. But it's, it's just per event, so it's really simple. And then they have mechanisms in there for, I don't think you really meant to send us this many events. We're just going to drop those. Yeah, we had a bunch of episodes like this. I don't know, whenever we had a... F- and it's such a different experience comparing to other SaaS vendors where like, well, you used all of your quota. You're in the dark for the rest of the day. Also, we hear a lot of our customers complain about in Datadog, if you want more granularity, you have to start adding custom tags and every one of those costs you something, which is exactly what you don't pay for in Honeycomb. You do not pay for that granularity. The only thing you can pay for is higher sampling rates. The reason that Honeycomb sets up our pricing this way is because the more context you send with the trace, the more value you're going to get out of it. And we really want people to get more and more value out of Honeycomb. So we set up the pricing to incentivize that. Yeah, for instance, like one thing we do right now is we use Datadog and and Honeycomb at the same time for Haskell services. And if I want to see like how many seconds I'm spending doing garbage collection, I look at Prometheus metrics that I scrape using Datadog. But I want to put those metrics in my tracing spans. There's no reason why I shouldn't. We wrote the Prometheus endpoint ourselves so we could put that stuff in in Honeycomb. Yeah. And then you can have it right along with your heat map of which traces are slow and you can find out, is it slow because we're spending more time in garbage collection? Adding those metrics to Datadog actually made us start paying for custom metrics. Here's a question. I actually did not guess when we started this episode, it was not my intention that we'd end up being a giant Honeycomb advertisement, which is not to say, you know, we shouldn't give props where due because, you know, obviously it's been really great for us. I'm very excited about Honeycomb because I've been working there for three weeks. So I'm still in the woo. But I, I did want to ask, it's not the only tool we use. If we had unlimited time, would we just put everything in Honeycomb like right now? Or is there a reason that we still want to continue using other things that aren't Honeycomb for our observability picture? I think before I joined the company, we were using New Relic. And when I joined the company, that was the first experience I had with like monitoring. I could see like what transactions the application is doing and whatnot. And New Relic had New Relic infrastructure, which gave us some metrics on like MySQL and whatnot. I know they improved that product, but we uh, discontinued it. And we started using other stuff for metrics. At some point, one team at the company got a free trial of, of Datadog and started putting stuff in Datadog. And we discovered that Datadog was pretty good for infrastructure monitoring, way better than, than the experience we had with New Relic. And we started to rely on a lot of stuff from, from Datadog. For instance, every year at some point in the year after the beginning of the school year, when we get like our new peak of high traffic, I do some planning where I look at a forecast of how fast is the database disk space going to go down? So when should I bump the disk space and by how much? because I have to take MySQL down to bump the disk space, or at least it degrades performance. I remember now how RDS handles that. Other metrics, like for instance, correlation between how much CPU is used in MySQL versus 
how many requests per minute we do in the monolith is another metric that I have in Datadog. Datadog allowed us to get fancier and fancier with like how we crunch the metrics that we send to it. And Datadog also gave us like 15 second granularity on, on metrics, which was like, we can see stuff that we could never see before in CloudWatch and in New Relic. CloudWatch defaults to five minutes or something. Uh, we get per minute granularity in, in CloudWatch. And there's some stuff like CloudWatch, unless we use the newer Kafka metric stream, which I haven't set up yet to check how it looks like. But we get per minute metrics. And there's some stuff that the highest granularity you can get is in CloudWatch. For instance, 5xx is at the load balancer or request per minute at the load balancer, P99 at the load balancer, which is a different view than what the application views. Because, for instance, if the application goes down and we start getting a lot of 5xx, I'm not going to get that in, in Honeycomb. I'm only going to get that at the load balancer because the application is not running. So for some stuff, like the model of sending traces from the application is just not going to be there for the load balancer, for instance. Or like internal metrics inside RDS, I'm not going to be able to run Honeycomb inside RDS unless someone convinces Amazon to do it, which I hope someone does, but we're not there yet. So we started relying on stuff like RDS Performance Insights, which gives us per second metrics on what each thread inside MySQL is doing at that specific second. And that was really valuable information that allowed us to see like micro stalls inside the database, which is like for five seconds at a time, we have 500 threads running in MySQL doing something while we have 32 CPUs in the machine. So something bad is going on for sure. And those five seconds don't show up anywhere else. They don't show up in in CloudWatch metrics, they just show up in the RDS Performance Insights, which can't be scraped by anything, unfortunately. And then at some point, Honeycomb came along, and then we got that same level of granularity and the same low latency for anything we can instrument. And we started a sort of like a, a movement, can we move everything to Honeycomb, because it's great. And the first thing we tried was the Ruby monolith. But we ran into problems, and I think that's the feature request you mentioned that the Honeycomb team, that was before the recording started, but the Honeycomb team might have mentioned my name because I wrote this document where like, th these are the things that are missing for Rails that prevent me from moving to Honeycomb. We use like six different, maybe six is not the right number, but we use a bunch of different network libraries because we use this specific library and I think Beeline Ruby only instruments one of them. We use Rescue and there's no instrumentation for Rescue. There's only a community made one for Sidekick. So there's a bunch of like stuff where New Relic has put a lot of, of human years of work into instrumenting and puts a lot of effort in like maintaining that stuff as, as Rails gets upgraded that we do not want to own. And not every vendor can maintain their own custom library for every single framework. And this is why Honeycomb and also Lightstep and AWS and Google and a lot of people have done the, have created open telemetry so that we can have a standard and somebody can write one library to emit metrics or one for traces for rescue to emit traces and metrics in a standard format that can then go to any of the vendors. Yeah, I think I saw this effort. I don't remember the name of the library, but it seems like there's a library that a lot of people are collaborating to sort of like turn into like the definitive Rails monitoring library that hopefully would, would work as well as, as the auto instrumentation from New Relic. And I was kind of surprised, like, why would New Relic put effort into this? Because for us, from our perspective, this is all we need to jump out of New Relic. But at the same time, I'm guessing, but I, I'm curious about your answer, that perhaps like it's a lot of cost for New Relic to maintain that stuff internally. And if they like put it in an open source project, they can fire a bunch of people. 
people who like New Relic will keep using, will send their uh, data to New Relic and it's a start. From Honeycomb's perspective, we are like not adding new features to the beelines. We would rather add them to the open source, vendor neutral, open telemetry libraries, which we contribute to. One reason that that benefits us is that if companies decide they're just going to run Prometheus and Zipkin and Grafana and whatever in-house to begin with and do an entirely open source implementation, there's a migration path from there to Honeycomb when they decide they want a real UI. What I love that because it sets up the incentive of you're going to use the observability or metrics or what you like. You're going to use the vendor that gives you the best value that has the best product, that has that low latency, that uh, granularity that you want, and lets you investigate and figure stuff out the best. Not the one that you have lock-in, not the one that has the most resources to pour into uh, library development. And if the different options have you know, they, they don't have 100% feature set overlap, like they don't. It's, it's a bit like at a hospital, it's like, well, which are you going to pick, MRI machine or x-ray machine or a stethoscope? It's like, well, I actually would like all three of those because depending on what I'm trying to understand, I want to look at different things. But then that, that does cost more, obviously. Yeah, this is sort of my perspective. Like, I, I feel that I can't afford not to use the best tool for digging into that specific point of the stack. Like, I can't afford not to use performance insights. I can't afford not to use right now New Relic for Rails. And I can't afford not to use Datadog for like our Kubernetes stuff. In good news, Honeycomb does have metrics in beta. It's enterprise only. So I doubt y'all are on the enterprise plan. But we are going the direction. It's not going to be everything Datadog is, which specializes in metrics and in what an infrastructure team needs for managing the resources. But Honeycomb metrics will be good enough for what a development team needs. And for the the really crucial use cases of my app is slow, is it CPU bound? And then it'll, you know, it'll gradually improve and stuff. So there is stuff there to be able to put metrics in Honeycomb, still in beta. But I agree with you. You're using all kinds of fancy data dog data crunching, and that's great. And if you can get the information that you need into Honeycomb to avoid having to add custom tags to Datadog, then you can you can really win. And I guess tangential to the, the whole cost story, uh, should you dive into logs? I want to talk about logs because we gave up on logs as a company, sort of. This is something that, that I'm curious about, like your perspective at uh, Honeycomb and your perspective in the industry. Logs for us were unsustainable. We adopted Datadog logs for some very low traffic services that do like 500 requests per minute or so. And okay, that was fine. And when we were ready to put the quiz engine, for instance, which is like four to 500,000 requests per minute service into Datadog logs, we did some crunching and we saw that we would pay for logs at Datadog if we ingest and, and do everything with them. If we don't use their rehydrate feature, which is like you ingest the logs, but you don't actually show them, you retroactively say, I want to look at logs in this time slice. Can you get that back from S3 or somewhere for us? If we don't use that, we would pay $11,000 in logs, which is more or close to what we pay in EC2 costs. I guess I lied. This is the total cost for both the, the monolith and the quiz engine. The quiz engine is more expensive. It's around $8,000. The monolith is around $2,000. But those two combined is the cost we pay for EC2. And for the quiz engine, it's actually probably like two to three times the amount we pay in 
compute costs in EC2 for that service. It's like mind-blowing. Does anyone use this? I don't understand it. I try to talk to like Datadog salespeople and they give me a bright picture about how to make this viable. And I hear Splunk is really crazy too. I mean, if you did want logs, I would tell you to go to Humio because they're like Splunk except better and cheaper. But even better than that is no logs at all. So good job. Because I've been thinking about this for a while. It's like logs are, well, they're almost literally printf. They're just the simplest thing. And we used to use them for everything. We used them to figure out what happened. We used them for audit. We used them for debugging and we used them for monitoring. People would have alerts set on logs. We used them for noticing errors and error tracking and stack traces and stuff. And we have more tools than that now. It seems like kind of working backwards. I think one of the paths in, in CloudWatch is like, you go from logs to metrics, but like, why would I pay twice or even more? Because we also did the crunching for CloudWatch logs and it was even more expensive than data log logs. To be fair, we are using logs in very specific things, like specific Kubernetes components in the cluster, like the cluster autoscaler. We log those and they actually help us because we can't put traces inside the cluster autoscaler. I think the right thing to do is to break down what do you want logs for? And then as you've done, use the best strategy for that thing. So I'm curious, does Honeycomb use logs at all at the company? We call them events. You could stick a message in an event. I was thinking like, as Honeycomb is getting bigger and bigger, like might there be compliance or security concerns? Well, see, that's auditing. That's another thing people have used logs for. You can also explicitly audit. You can save things to audit tables. You could admit events for that, but like our trace events that we use for alerting and debugging, there's a different retention period, right? I think we have like a 60-day retention period on those. Whereas your audit stuff you want to keep for years, who logged into production, who ran sudo, you want to keep that stuff for significantly longer. So that's audit and it's a completely different thing. So does Honeycomb use logs for that stuff? I think you mentioned events. Honeycomb uses Honeycomb for about everything. I should ask the infrastructure people if they use anything else, but we go to great effort. New Relic, I would be really surprised if we use that. I wouldn't be completely surprised if we use Datadog for some relics or some metrics, but really, we go to a lot of effort to use Honeycomb. For instance, you can totally use Honeycomb for all your metrics. Like you mentioned, the garbage collector use, you can totally slap that onto your events and have that in every span and trace and everywhere that you need it for no extra cost. The cost is slapping them onto the event, like writing that, that line of code and then whatever performance hit that takes. And so we've gone to that effort to slap everything onto our events. Not everyone is willing to do that work. I think about regards to log is, are we going to have to bow down at some point because of like some compliance that some school district requires that in the fine print says you have to use logs. You have to have a place where you store. You can make a database table and call it something, something underscore log. But I mean, if it's something, something underscore logs, and it's like the same concept of like every single activity that we do in that 500,000 request per minute service, it's still going to be terribly expensive. And see, that's what you don't audit. You don't audit every activity. You audit logins, you audit data access for any sort of sensitive data, but then you must and should consciously decide which of these things is valuable, what needs audited, and then it's much lower volume. I want to keep an eye on the clock and, and sort of one more topic that we wanted to get to before we wrap up is the concept of observability across teams. 
So we sort of talked a lot about an individual, like what, what I want to do to understand my system. But this can also be a way of helping teams understand what's going on with their stuff or what, with uh, other teams' stuff or, or the system as a whole. Let's talk about that a little bit. What are some experiences you've had? What are some you know things that have worked well, some pain points, some considerations, all that good stuff? Uh, Giuliano, you mentioned a Ruby monolith that people didn't understand and converting it to Haskell. But in order to do that, you had to load it into people's brains. I think it was a lot of work with like instrumenting the code very finely. I was not part of this effort, so I'm, I'm trying to guess what the team did from what they told us. I think it involved a lot of like very fine-grained in- instrumentation, very small incremental deployments, very small change sets. And basically, I guess that was it. And then moving to a system where you had more confidence about the guarantees you had about the code you wrote, which was for us Haskell. But that was a very isolated case in Norodink's history. Most of, our, of the teams that write features for Norodink don't live in that world. This team actually pushed the, the envelope in Norodink and started like doing deploys themselves, skipping QA and trying to push things multiple times a day. Our regular schedule at Norodink is like, we get one deploy a day. QA spends their day testing that code in a staging environment. At the end of the day, they push the button and the code is live. But that's like with changes, whereas adding instrumentation is strictly additive. You're not changing functionality. So it's one of the safest changes you can make. And you can imagine that regular schedule or like, well, one deploy happens a day. If I want to do that like very tiny change, it's going to take forever for me to do anything. And at the same time, when you have that schedule, when it's someone else who's pushing the button and putting your code live, and maybe you're not even working at that time, you don't really get into the habit of like looking at metrics and trying to see, or looking at traces and trying to see how your, your code is behaving in production. And I mean, even if you did look, eh, oh, it got slower. That was probably some change somebody else made. So we have this challenge of like, we have a very specific number of people who are excited about observability and who use it on their day-to-day. And we would like that to change somehow. I don't know if it makes sense, if it makes sense for every team to be looking at Honeycomb, Datadog, New Relic, or whatever makes sense for them every day and like building this very precise mental model of the code they're shipping, or if it makes more sense for them to be like day-long typing Elm and Haskell. It depends whether they care about solving puzzles or having an impact on customers. Well, to be fair, I mean, you build a new feature that definitely has an impact on customers. I mean, the real question is, where do you draw the line? As a developer, do I know whether people are using my feature? Do I know whether somebody's getting out on their bicycle and using their heart, or are they just laying in bed saying, oh, good thing my heart is really healthy? This gets into the question of like DevOps, right? I guess it's somewhat fading as a buzzword because it's kind of gotten co-opted to mean just infrastructure word. But we've definitely got a healthy number of resumes that go like past experience, sysadmin, 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 DevOps, 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 right when... That became a buzzword. But as I recall, the original definition of DevOps was trying to blur that line and say like developers and ops should be the same job, or at least like developers should all be involved in ops. I think there's like a philosophical question, but also just like a where do you want to draw the line question. And to Giuliano's point, I definitely think part of the equation is what are people excited about? And like, can you get people excited about like seeing the traces and, and like, Also, there's a literacy aspect. Like if I look at these graphs, do I actually, am I able to interpret them correctly? And the user interface of the observability systems we're using, I think plays a big role in that. Like how obvious is it to me? If I'm not spending all day in this tool, if I'm only using it every once in a while when I deploy, how obvious is it to me what these lines mean? If this one spikes, I'm like, uh oh, what does it mean? The only graph I can read is one I made personally. Somebody else made a graph, ah, squiggly lines. 
But if I wrote the query, then I have some concept of what those lines are, which means we have to make it really easy for people to figure out how to write queries and to figure out what to query. Struck a chord with me, I think. I've been trying really hard to work on this aspect at Noradink, but I'm the person who creates all the dashboards in Datadog. I'm the person who creates the dashboards in Honeycomb. Well, not just me, but uh, the Quiz Engine team too. That also relates to your point, like they created their own dashboard. And perhaps I've been working backwards at like trying to teach people the things I've created instead of like trying to teach people to answer the questions that they have. One thing I love about Honeycomb is it doesn't say, hey, these are the things you want to look at. It says, what do you want to look at? And then after that, it's like, well, what's interesting about that? How do you want to break that down next? The goal being not to give you answers that look good on a wall. It's to give you better questions. That makes a lot of sense. And that, that makes me think that this is perhaps one reason why I think when I heard about Honeycomb the first time, a lot of people were talking about the bubble up. I'm not such a fan. And you know why? The bubble up is so cool. I think it gives me answers to questions I'm not asking. Like when I reach for the bubble up, I don't know what question to ask. If I'm really like, quote unquote, in the flow, like digging into the system in Honeycomb, I'm not using the bubble up. I'm using queries. I'm the bubble up is useful for people who don't know what to ask. They're just like, this looks weird. What's weird about it? And Honeycomb is like, well, uh, this thing is different between the ones you picked and the rest of them. And this thing is different. And this, but it's up to you to figure out which of those is meaningful. Ever since we adopted Honeycomb, like since the first impressions, very rarely I've reached to the bubble up. I think that plays to your point too, that like, I guess how much you care and how much time you spend on observability. Well, you know your system already. If you know it, you know what you want to ask. But someone new coming or looking at another team's service might not know what to ask, might be like, I think this neighboring team, their service just got slow. Let me go look at their traces. You might select the ones that are slow on the heat map and be like, what happened here? And maybe bubble up tells you, well, this input parameter was different. That gives you a question to go ask the team that maintains that service. Hey, we see your service being slow. It's kind of causing problems for us. We noticed that this and the other is different when it's slow. What does that mean? Did you ever see a transition from this world where people care very little about how their software runs in production to a world where ready? care a lot about that in the same context, like same people, same company. Isn't that what DevOps is? Originally, that's like the kind of the point. That's the idea. But the question is, have you personally seen it? Like, have you experienced it like a company that successfully pulled that off? I don't think I've personally seen that. I've always been at a company that was small enough that they started. Everyone cared. But if you're at a big enterprise, good luck getting people to care. Uh, one of my personal missions is, can we at least give them the opportunity to care by giving them some sort of information? Because right now... If they care, they better either stop caring or quit or be miserable. It's a culture thing, whether to care, but culture is supported and constrained by the system it's in. And changing what's available in the system doesn't magically change the culture, but it gives the culture the opportunity to change. It makes me think about the example you gave before where like, I just shipped a feature. Is anyone using this feature? Do I care? I want to know whether people are using it. I want to know whether this error that I just put e.print stack trace on, is that actually happening? And how often? And to whom? Does it happen just in the dev environment? Or does it happen to our biggest customers? I think that's a great note to end on is that, hey, maybe this episode can serve as inspiration to people that 
hey, after you're building the thing, check out how you can observe its effects in the wild. See what impact it's actually having. Let's do some picks. So picks are just, uh, we'll each go through and just talk about one to three things that we'd like to share with people that we're interested in or excited about or just want to sort of get out into the world. Jessica, you want to start? So I've got one at Philly ETE this year. Uh, Kent Beck and I keynoted, but don't go watch that. Watch Alan Kay's keynote from Philly ETE this year. That's the best talk that I've seen in ages, and it's really, really deep. Uh, second pick, I'll plug a couple workshops. I'm doing a workshop with Eric Evans in October on domain-driven design. That one's sold out, but you could get on the wait list or let us know that you want another one. And also, Beck and I are planning on doing a workshop on systems thinking, just a one-day quickie invitation to systems thinking, half a day in November. And you can find that at systemsthinking.dev. Juliana, you want to go next? My picks are mostly not computer related, I guess. So I have a, a culinary pick to promote. You should try avocados with sugar and milk. It's the thing we love in Brazil. I grew up eating that. Our avocados are different though. I'm not sure if they're going to work with US uh, type avocados, like the tiny ones. We have large ones that are... Our avocados are maybe the size of football ball. American football or football everywhere else in the world? American football ball, yeah. Yeah, not a soccer ball. I have another pick I want to promote. There's this web series that I randomly found on YouTube called People Watching, and it's really good. Like great writing, very sensitive stuff. I don't know if a lot of people know it, but you should give it a try. All right. I've got one pick for today, which is a service that probably a lot of people have heard of, but maybe have not used in this particular way. So the service is Discord, which is normally a, a chat slash voice server. It's like largely used for games. I had honestly only ever used it for like chat and programming communities before, although I know it's mainly used for games. But what I actually found out, and I think actually, Giuliano, you might have been the person who told me about this. It's actually really great if you want to just like play a game with a friend, like one-on-one, -on -one, share your screen and share the audio and share your microphone and stuff like that. So I have a friend from college who we used to play video games together in college and stuff. And now we don't live in the same state, but with the pandemic and everything, it's actually like a really fun way to spend a couple hours on a weekend is just load up Discord, share a screen. It's almost like we're in the same room playing together, except uh, it's not quite the same, but it feels remarkably similar. Like the latency seems to be great and everything like that. Really fun. I think it was me. I tried OBS, like self-hosting my own OBS before. I'm doing the same thing. I'm playing Mass Effect with a friend who's a big fan of the series and I never played it. And Legendary just came out. So every weekend I play, he watches and comments and we talk. And I tried rolling my own OBS setup. I thought that would be like the lowest latency thing we could do. Didn't work. I tried Twitch, didn't work too high latency. Twitch has like a deliberate delay. That's interesting. But Discord magically works perfectly. Like almost no latency. I like that in Discord, you can both share screen. You can have like six people in a room and multiple people can share their screens so you can decide whose game you're going to watch right this second. Let's wrap it up there. Thank you both so much, Jessica and Giuliano, for coming on and talking about observability. This is fun. Thank you. Thank you all. This was great. 